0: Coming on the Agony Column podcast, Susanna Moore's new novel is The Big Girls.
1: The book originated in my wish to write about motherhood.
0: But she took a turn to the dark side.
1: I pushed it to its limit and decided to write about someone who kills her children.
0: All in the interest of literature.
1: Someone once asked me, why don't you write about nice people? And of course, the answer is that nice people aren't very interesting. They are not that compelling.
0: Compelling reading. Coming on the Agony Column Podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. I've decided to include two readings from Susanna Moore's new book, The Big Girls. The first is from the point of view of Dr. Louise Forrest.
1: Helen is a twenty eight year old woman of Scotch, Irish, and Polish descent. She grew up in a working class family on Long Island, New York. She has one sibling, a younger brother named Kelly, who serves in the United States Army. Previous to her recent incarceration she had no criminal record, although she has a substantial psychiatric history. She has succeeded in cutting herself twice since her arrival at the prison last June, using the lenses of her glasses and the crucifix of a rosary. Her thin forearms are ringed with old and new scars. As she expected, even wished to be put to death for her crime, she believes that her sentence is not sufficiently severe. She has subsequently devised her own means of punishment, which is to eat as little as possible, at the same time satisfying a craving for sugar. She lives on Snowcap's candy, eating three to four boxes a day. She told me that if she could have one wish in the world, it would be to eat pizza with her son, Shane. She will not touch the packages of food that her mother occasionally sends, but gives them to other inmates. I have discussed her diet with the prison doctor, Dr. Subramania, but short of feeding her by force, there is nothing that can be done. I have requested that she be given an eye exam. She is very attached to her glasses, which are broken, cleaning them frequently with that solemn concern demonstrated by people who have worn glasses since childhood. There was something in my face, perhaps, or in my voice, when she spoke of her children today that caused her to ask if I too had children, of course I couldn't answer her. She rarely speaks of her husband, who is a Pentecostal Christian, except to say that he must hate her. I would hate myself if I knew me, she said.
0: The second reading is from the point of view of Helen, who is an abuse survivor who has murdered her own children. I want to warn readers that portions of this narrative may be disturbing.
1: It's St. Patrick's Day. In the kitchen, they will dye everything they can get their hands on green. Green cottage cheese, green fruit cocktail, green rice. I won't be eating any of it, even if it wasn't green. I was supposed to give Wanda my answer about being in her family, and I did. This is a big step for me. I never knew a lesbian in my life, and if I did, I didn't know it. I said I'd be honored to be in her family. There is a ceremony in the beginning of next month to introduce me. Wanda always gives you something religious when you join. I got a blue medal of St. Christopher carrying a baby. It's the Catholics who wear medals usually, but that doesn't bother me. Uncle Dad's first wife was a Catholic, so his children with her were brought up Catholic. I was always a little jealous of their school uniform— Paddy's was a green plaid jumper and a little white blouse with a collar. I don't know if Uncle Dad ever made his own girls do the things he made me and Ellie do, but my guess is he didn't. They didn't live with us, but I think I'd have known if he did. Ellie definitely knows, but she's not telling. She's good at keeping secrets. I guess I am beginning to know certain things myself now, even if I fight against it. I don't say remember, because Dr. Forrest says I never forgot. She says for most of my life, I wouldn't let myself know. She is only partly right. She thinks she knows everything, but there are things I haven't told her. It would begin in the tub. He would turn out the light in the bathroom while he was giving me a bath, and it was the strangest feeling being in that warm water in the darkness, It was like it was all around you, but you couldn't tell what it was. Were you floating in darkness or were you floating in water? It was different when he came to my room. Then I was floating in air, looking down at us. Later, after I had Shane and Kaylee, he would come by when Jimmy was at work. I was floating then, too, but that was because of the medicine Dr. Kiergoren gave me. He stopped for a while after Shane was born, but not for long. I thought it was because I lost my figure and I got back in shape as fast as I could. That is a example of what Dr. Forrest says happens to people. The person who is abused wants her abuser to like her. When I thought about that, I knew it was true. But when Dr. Forrest first said it, I couldn't admit it. It just made me so sad. I cried for days after that. Some things are very terrible.
0: Susanna Moore is the author of My Old Sweetheart, The Whiteness of Bones and Sleeping Beauties. In 1995, she published In the Cut, and in 2003, One Last Look. Her new novel is The Big Girls. Welcome to the program, Susanna.
1: Yes, hi, Rick.
0: This is a very disturbing and dark book, but you've chosen a really unique storytelling method. Tell us a little bit about why you chose the method of storytelling that you chose to tell this sort of story.
1: I fell in love with the first-person narrative when I was writing in the cut. I had never done it before. I had in all the previous books, the three previous, I had written in the third person, and they have a kind of formality and a kind of detachment, perhaps in part because they were so autobiographical, it was helpful, ironically, not to write it in the first person. But after in the cut, I was completely seduced by, by the first person. So I knew that I wanted to write it in that form. I also was rather interested in the idea of the unreliable narrator, by which I, I don't mean a narrator who is lying to you all the time or dishonest, but that you, through the course of the story, are not sure of the truth like in life. And so I thought that to have different voices often reflecting on the same events would be a way to illustrate that. And also, what better place than a prison in which you, and a psychiatrist, in which you are, the people who are speaking to you are evasive or not necessarily telling the truth or bound to a kind of mythos about themselves that they have created or in this case of the psychiatrist speaking elliptically and i thought i thought that the the odd funny four separate voices would would work
0: tell us a little bit about what the setup of the book is we have a psychiatrist who's seen a patient in prison tell us a bit little bit about that patient and some of the other voices in the book
1: well you know the the funny thing is and and it's funny in the comical sense I realize because when I say it not meaning to be humorous people laugh now, of course I can see the humor now but the book originated in my wish to write about motherhood I had written a lot about having a mother the first you see you're even smiling <laughs> yes. the first 3 books are about a mother and written really more or less from the child. And with each book, the child is a little older until she's a woman. But I had never written about what it is like to have a child. And there was a quote that I think is William Faulkner, although I have never been able to find it again, but it has stuck in my mind. And the quote is, after becoming a parent, he was never again happy in the same way. And that was something that as a parent I felt very strongly. I recognize that not all parents feel this way. But I was very conscious as a parent of my feelings uh, occasioned by having a child of grief and I suppose rage, although that's much more unconscious, but certainly grief and certainly anxiety. So I wanted to write about that, and in as is my wont, I, as in in the cut, I I pushed it to its. I pushed it to its limit, and and decided to write about someone who who kills her children. And I have a daughter who's thirty, and when I, when she discovered that this was. Uh, how my wish to write a book about maternity was manifesting itself was quite. I have to say. Startled, and she didn't say anything for a few days. And she came back to me and said, Oh, Mama, you can be honest with me, but d- d- does this mean that you wanted to kill me? I, of course, said, No, not at all.
0: You have a really great phrase in here where you describe that the love for a child is like a stomach ache, which I think mm-hmm. is a really apropos because there's a, a constant gnawing worry when you have children yes. that something will happen to them.
1: Yes. That that's really what interested me, and i I felt that stomach ache very strongly. And the anxiety when they're not in your presence, the fantasy that you can absolutely protect them, of course, you can protect them up to a point. and the the, the it also has to do with a kind of, I think, an identification about loss of innocence. Because I notice in myself, and when people tell stories about their children, that the stories that are most painful r- reflect the child's loss of innocence, and I think that that is because it corresponds to a loss of innocence in oneself that one is still grieving about.
0: You've created a, a really interesting character in, in this novel, Helen. She's the the woman who's incarcerated for murdering her children. I, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about how you went about creating somebody who most readers are going to think of if you don't know her through the through your prose as a monster and yet how you create sympathy for the devil.
1: Well, uh, another thing that interested me when I was um, thinking about writing this book was the idea that you could kill your children and be sane, which, of course, as we know, is a belief, certainly of judges, juries, prosecuting attorneys, the press, public. It was not a belief I ever held. I always, uh, I would have fought, did fight, um, to attest that if you killed your children, you were just by the very act insane. And then when I, and also I was very upset on behalf of women who were rather than being treated, were locked up and and some executed. I mean, for example, now there are, I think there are 45 women on death row in America, 11 of whom have killed their children. I thought these women should be um, treated in hospitals and then, if cured, let go. I didn't think they should be locked up for the rest of their lives or or, in fact, killed. So, when I began to do research, which I did for about a year and a half by reading everything I could find, from scholarly monographs um, on psychosis to the court TV um, website has a very interesting, quite ghoulish archive where you can look up all sorts of crime. I mean, you can go to this site and put in cannibalism, and 10 stories will pop up. All true so a lot of the my research came from that in fact and the and the quote in the book you know about the man from that was executed in nineteen thirty eight who boiled his victim and ate her that comes from
0: albert fish
1: the yes from the the daily news the archives of the daily news so I made up less than um one would think, but when I was doing my research, I was rather startled to discover that i um was beginning to change my mind a little bit. And it it suddenly seemed possible that some of these women were less insane than I, in fact, would like them to be in order to justify what they did. And there were some who were more likable, if I can use that word, than others. And Susan Smith, for example, is very difficult to like because of her personality and her behavior and the the little details of her crime and her accusations and things she did later, and which, of course, to me is slightly... makes me smile at myself because it has an element of irrationality. You know, if I'm going to support these women, whether I like them or not has nothing to do with my beliefs. But, of course, it creeps in. You can't help it.
0: I find what you say pretty interesting just to invert, by virtue of the fact that Helen, your your main character... She starts out the book wanting to die, and as a reader, I could understand that totally. Tell us a little bit about that kind of conflict within the character and within yourself.
1: Well, I was very intent when I sat down to write the book and to write about Helen that this was not going to be a book about someone who was either imprisoned unfairly, in the sense that she was innocent, nor about a prisoner who thinks that she has been imprisoned unfairly. I wanted it to be very clear that Helen took full responsibility for her crime. That she was psychotic is not clear to her. And the irony, of course, in the book, which is true for all right-thinking, by that I mean sympathetic psychiatrists and social workers in prison, is that the treatment that the treatments, usually in this term, in the sense of medicine as well as therapy, that that um, is given to prisoners, increases their despair because as they become more conscious of what has happened to them and less crazy, of course, the guilt and horror increases. So there's a certain irony in that which Doctor Forrest talks about, and even Helen herself says that you know the the um, the saner. The saner she becomes, the more suicidal she becomes because she is forced to see what she has done.
0: You have a really fascinating portrait of women's prisons in this book. It has a lot of stuff that I th- don't think any of us ever suspected of, about the families in prison. And in fact, this novel has a lot to do with families because our families inside and outside of prison and in some ways the ones in prison are a little bit more functional than the ones outside.
1: I, I, that was the other thing that was that was my theme. I did in wanting to write about what it is to be a mother. Of course, was writing about what it is to be in a family. And and I, I, I'm glad that you said that because the book, to me, is about really about two things: families and celebrity. In, in a dis, you know they're disparate, but they they're brought together th- through Helen and and um, through the Hollywood actress. But Yes, I, I think the book is very much, and in, in, in an extreme way, exaggerated way about primal anarchy and primal rage, and all about the relate. I mean, there are many, many relationships in the book between parents and children. Almost everybody, whether it's Ike or the movie star or the, the other prisoners or certainly the psychiatrist, certainly Helen. It's it's the 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 subject that with which they are involved or and, and and in a way obsessed is is family and then then it's counter it's mirrored by something that was a discovery to me which I thought was thrilling when I read about it because it was it was as if I I were given a metaphor which is that in women's prisons there is this long tradition of very elaborate, hierarchical, complicated, subtle, emotional families um, that are made up of all women, but the women play the male roles as well as the female and all different ages. So their grandfathers and their uncles, as well as aunts and cousins and sisters and mothers and fathers, of course, and their very strict rules. There are divorces. There are um, rules against incest. There are baptisms. There are engagements. There are confirmations. There are deaths. And um, this interior family that is is constructed in women's prisons is, is keeps them alive. I think.
0: Tell us a little bit about your work in a prison.
1: Well, you would would think that my work began before I wrote the book, or my work perhaps led to an interest in these women, but it was ironically the opposite, that I did my research reading and then wrote the book. And then I think the simplest way to put it is that I had fallen in love with Helen, and I felt that I wanted to do something for women in prison. And then it was then that I volunteered to teach this writing class in a uh, women's prison and did.
0: But that didn't last too long, did it?
1: No, it didn't last too long. I got thrown out for bringing in uh, contraband, which which was yarn and and writing paper and magazines, which i had bringing had been bringing in openly you know in my hands all along, but for reasons that we none of us prisoners myself, some of the officers can figure out we don't we don't know quite what happened except that they had, the the administration had had enough of me. maybe they thought I was a troublemaker I don't know I wasn't i really I certainly wasn't.
0: One thing I found really interesting about this book was the kind of oral history style in that you have these four different narrators um, rotating between their voices. You do some really subtle things to make sure every time we encounter a new section told by a new voice that we immediately know how it is, who it is, who's speaking. Could you talk a little bit about the, the crafting of that? Because it's it's very subtle, but it's also very helpful when you're reading.
1: Well, I think when I wrote the first few drafts, I think it was much less clear who was speaking. And in fact, I have a friend who said to me, oh, this book is so, such an interesting study of a split personality. She, she actually thought it was one person who was taking all of these, uh, slipping into all of these roles. And so I realized, because I do believe that the, the reader is almost always right. You know, if something's not working, it's, it's your fault. So I I was very careful to go back and to fix it. And and if I were teaching, which I do, but if I were teaching how to do this, you know, it's it was it's very simple, which is that in in the opening line of each paragraph of a new voice, I I slip in a word or two that makes it very clear who it is. So if you if you were if you were noticing it, you would see it would say my patient or today in Manhattan or in my cell or I have no windows in my cell. There's something almost in every first line that helps you to know who is speaking.
0: You say you went through several drafts of this book. I'm curious, uh, this is a very clean book. When I read this, I just feel like it's just scrubbed to, to perfection and very polished. Did you write each section separately? Did you write it in order
1: no, it, I didn't write it in alternating voices. I did not. It's not as if I wrote all of Helen and then all of um Dr. Forrest and spliced them together in some way. Although there was some rearranging, of course, you know, and also because I don't know a lot about how a book will turn out, you off, I often have to go back and insert things to give it a kind of cohesion and continuity and clarity. So that if, you know, I Captain Bradshaw who came into the story rather late, once Captain Bradshaw is born, I have to make sure, you know, 50 pages later, Dr. Forrest notices him in the hall. You know, so you, you're, you're adjusting things like that, All you know, always. All writers do, I think.
0: One of the things, I guess, that, that interests me is there's a lot of hallucinations in this book. Uh, it, Helen is hallucinating a lot. Uh, and, and, she, and I think a lot of the hallucinations have this kind of Christian imagery and it made me think that a lot of the, the the most horrific things that you describe in here are things that you might actually find in, in the Bible at, at some point or another. And, and I'm wondering if you'd care to comment on how Christian imagery is this font of, of terror and hallucination.
1: Well, it's a font of sort of violence and the retribution of an angry God and punishment and sin and... Um, damnation and she she is crazy you know I, I i there is no way that helen could not be crazy in this book for me i suppose someone could write a book about a another kind of helen but helen s- slips in and out of her psychosis and her psychosis is not only manifested in this splitting off a of personality which she does with her imaginary friend Ellie which is very very common in children who are abused or people who suffer traumatically which is that they split uh, split themselves into two in order to bear what has happened uh, otherwise literally they they could not i mean they would be uh, she would have been an insane 5 year old if she hadn't been able to do that and then also, like a lot of abused children, you know, the, her sense of guilt and sense of responsibility is so strong that it it also pushes her over the edge. You know, ch- abused children often feel that it is their fault, and it, it's very complicated. You know, because of sometimes the refusal of other adults to believe them. The the as she mentioned in the passage I read, the wish to be loved. Then there's the other aspect which I don't really write about, which is about the, the you know, the what a friend of mine says is the body as machine, whereas the child actually unwillingly and and innocently experiences pleasure, so it becomes completely confused in the child's mind with I mean, this is what some people believe is how sadomasochism is, you know, um starts in a person. So the Christian imagery I, I mean I, I think the the Christian Christian religion is very harsh and very unforgiving and very, very um, punishing, even of children.
0: Louise Forrest herself, the doctor, is sick. She she refers to herself as a masochist. So you have yet another unreliable narrator in your character who's even sane.
1: She's a masochist in the way many women are masochists, you know, which is... And because she's a psychiatrist, she recognizes it and can put a name to it and can, and can accept it in herself and joke about it and tease herself about it. I mean, she's not a masochist in the sense that she goes home after work and has herself tied up and beaten. But she, she recognizes the masochism in her fantasies, which is that masochism is, although it's quite unfashionable for a woman to say it, you know, is, is not uncommon.
0: This novel is filled with a series of events and descriptions that are discomforting, discomforting, unpleasant, difficult to read and difficult to encompass. As a reader, you make it palatable by virtue, I think, of the of the prose. But as a writer, I didn't. Wasn't this a tough to immerse yourself in all this the this horror, particularly the the child abuse?
1: It was very hard to go back to this world each day, I have to say. And, of course, in the beginning it was less hard, and then as it it progressed and I got deeper and deeper into this world, it was sometimes unbearable. And I I also think um, lately, because I've had to think about the book uh, as a book, finished, written, being read by other people, that it's full of a kind of anger and that I am taking little pot shots all along the way at... Whether it's Christian fundamentalists or anti-abortionists or the people at Guantanamo or even poor Yoko Ono gets a little bit of a of a um, slap, and uh, I think that I resort to that in a way to shock people into thinking about things. Although I I have to say, and it probably sounds disingenuous, I never begin with that intention. I really have very strong feelings about. Uh, the didacticism in a book, in other words, it should that should be none, and that almost in a way, a writer should have as the writer's point of view should be so subtle as to be almost indiscernible. I mean, I know that's often not the case, and 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 I can't even claim that I succeed in this book because I think my point of view is very obvious. Don't you think?
0: Yeah, quite, yeah, no, you know, it's it's quite obvious, quite but fervent, but it's not. Um, I don't think it's hammered. Oh, it doesn't seem. It does not seem didactic. Good. Oh, it oh, it seems very I'll dispassionate. And this a little is, cold. Which a, is
1: a way. Which is a way of not being didactic.
0: Right. It, it, there's a, a distancing effect by virtue of the way it's almost re- reportorial. Just because I feel you feel like we're reading different pe- parts of different people's yes. diaries yes. almost.
1: Yes. Yes. I do that on purpose. It has a kind of flatness and lack of emotionalism in, in part to um, keep it from being two things, either didactic or sentimental.
0: Or sensational. Or sensational. Although it is very shocking. You, you just have one horrific aside after another in this book that, that's very disturbing. And, and I'm wondering, do you think we're just more aware of that now, that this has always been around, or that we're just—are uh, we I, seeing it more, or is it I or is think, more of it? I
1: think we're more aware of it, and I also think, and as happens, we're more inured to it. I mean if if there's, there's a website that you can go to and put in cannibalism, and there are four or five stories about people killing and eating children, and, and you know which gets quite a few hits, and the prevalence of pornography, I, I think we are more aware and we are more jaded.
0: Doesn't a book like this make us more jaded?
1: Oh God, I hope not. No, I don't think so. Do you think it would?
0: It arguably could just by virtue of the fact that, that you really deal with this kind of subject. I think the way you deal with it, it doesn't. But I'm wondering, when when you were writing this book, were you thinking, I'm going to write about things that will make people cringe?
1: No, I never, ever think that. I never think that. And and I, you know, this may come as a surprise, but I actually think the, the book is, has a lot of humor in it. I think the book is quite funny. I mean, someone last night at a reading said, did you intend to write a black comedy? And I was really startled because I would never go that far. And I said to this person, oh, my goodness, you think this is a black comedy? She said, well, sort of. So uh,
0: There is a lot of humor. I I won't dispute that, but uh, I would be careful about pronouncing too much of it funny just by virtue of the fact that it's so Deadly serious
1: and dark. No, and of and to say it's a black comedy is, I think, inaccurate. I hope you would agree to I that. Know. Yeah. But did I ma- want to make people cringe?
0: Because you talk just about, I mean, not not just the the horrific crimes you recount, but just the the situations and the observations you make at a personal level about the discomfort of the characters.
1: I think. I think I was referring to that. In, in part, when I said that I have realized that there's a lot of anger in the book, so I think it's not so much an intention to make people cringe, but is to ma- is to kind of prod people and to make them aware of how bad things are, and how bad things are in particular for women, and how bad things are in particular for Black women, and how you know prisons now have become. I don't want to preach and 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 um. I think statistics in the end often just remain statistics. But prisons now also are the holding pens for people who are mentally ill for, for good reasons. For the fact that the, there were constitutional rulings in which people were allowed out of mental hospitals and also because it's much harder to lock somebody up now. You, it's not that easy. It used to be quite easy. That's a good thing. But the the bad thing is what you do with these people who are mentally ill, and, and one of the solutions has been to put them in prison where they suffer horribly.
0: There is some humor in, in the, the character of Angie, the, the Hollywood starlet, and I'm wondering, you had an encounter with, with Hollywood and, and when they filmed your book in the cut, and I'm wondering how much of this... Character that we see here is comes out of those experiences.
1: You know, Angie comes out of earlier experiences, which is would be more accurate. When I was very young, I think twenty-two, my first job, my first serious job, if you can call it serious, uh, was as a script reader to Warren Beatty, and then later I did it for years for Jack Nicholson, and I was also married to a man who was a who was much older than I was and was a production designer and who designed films like Chinatown and Dick Tracy and, I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? So in my 20s, I was in that world, and it really comes from those days. I mean, I even had a brief... I, was, I even, in some of my bios to my horror, it describes me as an actress because I have this tiny little part, for example, in Shampoo... Because Warren, for the simple reason that Warren always thought my voice was hilarious. He used to start to laugh every time he heard me say good morning. So he, I have this tiny, tiny little scene in the beauty salon where I walk through and I ask the character something. So, but somehow in my, in my, you know, my biography now, I, I'm an actress, and that's really all it amounted to. I suppose publicists, you know, grab hold of anything they can, but it comes from those days.
0: One of the things this novel does very well, I thought, was as we get more and more details about who the people are, what has happened to them, and where they are at this moment, I think that this novel made me fear that much more was going to happen. I could see uh, so many places where things could go really, really awfully wrong. You At one point, you mentioned uh, a, a hostage, they, that they have to be careful about a hostage situation. And we have her, uh, the doctor's son, who's also in some peril on both sides of, of, the, of the continent. And I'm wondering, as a writer, when you are creating this kind of... As you're writing this, you're creating a series of potential plots and at any given stage of this book, it could go in a number of different ways. Did you have any of those alternate visions? Did you write those out?
1: Well, I, I think, too, in in a novel, it's very important to to have tension and conflict. You know, someone once asked me, why don't you write about nice people? And, of course, the the answer is that nice people, at least in a novel, aren't very interesting. Maybe true in real life, too, but certainly in a novel, they, they are not that compelling. And I didn't think of hostage-taking, but just now as you said it, I thought, hmm, what a good idea. I, I, I didn't think of that. What I did think was that for a while that Helen might kill Dr. Forrest. And there's even a line toward the end of the book in which Helen confesses that the voices, the messengers, have told her to kill Dr. Forrest. And we know because of her history that it was the messengers who told her to kill her children, which she did. But I, I, it, it seemed too melodramatic and not really something Helen would do. And as Helen, as Helen becomes healthier, thanks to Dr. Forrest and her medicine, of course, Helen's self-loathing increases to the point where she, she herself cannot continue to live
0: you know, that brings up a, a really interesting point for me. That Something I found fascinating was what I call medicated prose. <laughs> As the characters are medicated, I mean, I, we all know people who, like, personalities subtly and sometimes grossly shift when they're on, on medication. I'm wondering, did you know somebody whose personality has shifted on medication? or uh, How did you achieve some of those effects?
1: Well, you know, I am one of those people who came very late to the idea of psychopharmacology as being beneficial i'm 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 i think i'm oddly old fashioned and i i have been in the past quite resistant to the idea that everything is chemical you know i have i have a friend who's a doctor who says that even our dreams are chemical that that, that absolutely comes from what is happening in the brain and has nothing to do with anything but that i mean freud would faint. But I was quite stubborn about it I think and and perhaps a bit ignorant and I I slowly because I have seen how it has saved people come round but it, I've also seen how it changes people it's a little bit the way people used to talk about AA you know or people who stopped drinking you know that yes it's better that you're sober but you know you were really much more fun before you know that awful thing that people say and that's been that that whole conversation now has been re- replaced by the one about medicine. And I think we still don't know everything about it. I'm still I used to I went through a period of taking um very mild antidepressants, Wellbutrin, in a period when I was very depressed and I I didn't like it at all and I stopped. I thought it much better to be just depressed. So someone later asked me, "Well, how do you feel now that you've stopped?" Taking your medicine, and of course. The you know it was like a, uh, being set up a straight man. The obvious answer, you know, I feel really, really sad.
0: <laughs> uh, it interests me too that the the use of Freud in the book. We, Freud has gone through all sorts of revolutions in, in psychiatry. That for a while it was considered science, and then he was discarded and. We've now recently had him return more as a artist and a and a writer, as opposed to somebody who really like discovered facts. So, where do you stand yes, on so Freud? A,
1: that that is really a perfect description of him. You know that he, that now, for example, the, the his case study of Dora is taught in in literature classes. Um, you know, I was a little worried about the 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 fact that Dr. Forrest is a Freudian because it's extremely anachronistic i mean it's not amongst young psychiatrists and doctors it is not cool to be a freudian and it's not he's seen as a kind of as you say a grand old man poetic he had some interesting ideas he made a lot of mistakes um he, he he's exactly more of an artist and and an and an inspiration and And things move so quickly now that that even someone like—because then I began to research it. You know, I thought, oh, God, I better really be more up to date. But even someone like Lacan is already a bit dated. You know, there's a whole new trend in psychiatry and certainly um, treatment, which is—there's a name for it I can't remember. But, you know, you just—you go for a specific problem there's a name
0: uh well, the only thing I think of is is neuroscience I'm really interested in in studying you know the electrical and chemical activity of the brain
1: no that too is very 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 um but that that's a good thing this other this other i mean I like that and i I have a very good friend who's a forensic um psychiatrist who was with me every on every. With every pill in this book and vetted it and helped me. But no, this other thing, this, the, what's popular in psychiatry now is you go for a particular problem and you discuss that and <clears throat> you do not discuss your childhood or dreams or, or what your mother and father did to you as a child. And you only go for a certain period, you know, you go for a month or two months and then you can come back. But it's not about the unconscious, it's about, it's, it's very practical. But that didn't interest me. I didn't want her to be that kind of doctor.
0: When you, One thing that, that interests me, too, is that um, these kind of, you have a really good way of having Helen describe incidents in her past and some of the other characters, too, in a way that we know that, that when she describes some aspect of her childhood, we know that way back then, that things were really wrong with her; these kind of early warning signs. Could you talk about using those and integrating the whole science of psychiatry into your plot, making that a plot point? That's what this book turns on.
1: If she is, you know, psychotic, which I, which she is, I suppose one could write a book and it could be very modern in which she just is psychotic. I mean, there is a trend now in literature not to have what they call a backstory the backstory being a modern idea anyway. You know, you don't, when you're reading um, Return of the Native, we, we don't ever know anything about Eustacia Vy's childhood. It was important to trace her development as a woman and as this absolutely doomed victim without, again, making it sentimental or without without causing it to be what I would call too squishy. You know, it, it, need, it needed a kind of, I hope it has a kind of toughness, the book, in that way, that it's not soft in the way self-help books are. or
0: Absolutely not.
1: I hope not. I hate self-help books.
0: Have you had much of a reaction from abuse survivors in, in, to this book? I mean, I, what do they think of this book?
1: You know I have I have not had any reaction. I mean it's it's early. The two of the incidents in the book um ha- happened to a friend of mine, the same friend of mine. And after I wrote it, I sent her the manuscript and asked her she had told me these stories. And I asked her if um it was all right for me to use them, and that of course, if she didn't want me, to, of course, it doesn't use her name or refer to her in any way. And she said that she read the pages and wept for days, and then um, said, of course, that I could use them. Um, I will be interested. I would, I would like to know what people think. I, I, I mean, as we were, as we discussed earlier, what, supposedly one in four women have been. Have suffered sexual abuse, so I, I don't know if it's the sort of thing though. say they reading, you raise your hand and announce. I mean, perhaps I will get letters.
0: I, I would presume so. Uh, I, I'm curious too. When you write such an extreme book, this is to me in many ways is is a, is a horror novel. I mean. It it scares the bejesus out of me, just in terms of showing what humans are capable of, and humans, moreover, who live in a civilized and polite society. Did you think of this as a horror novel?
1: No, I no, I really didn't. I I, I thought of, you know I'm all of my books are about women, and it is it remains the great challenge to me, and the great um, temptation, and the great anxiety to, is. To write a, a book from the point of view of a man, and I'm very conscious that I do not um, write about men really. That the men in my books, all of them, are secondary characters or supplemental. And well, I mean, maybe Malloy in the Cut* is, is is a male figure who's stronger, but I, my focus is really on women. So what, and and I'm interested in. I suppose I have become more radical as my as I've gotten older, and my books have become more extreme. But all of the things that are in this book can be found in the earlier books. You know, the Whiteness of Bones, which was only my second book. There's a child who's molested in like the first twenty pages. There's a a woman who's raped with a, a salt shaker. You know, there's there's you know it has grotesquerie and violence. There is. There is that in all of the books, certainly in the cut. Yeah. And, and the Indian book, which is this mild, rather dense, I mean, I wrote it like a, a Victorian fruitcake, you know, packed with things that 19th century India, the, 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 the central relationship is an incestuous one between a brother and sister. So I obviously can't leave it alone.
0: This brings up a, a, a phrase that I found in here that I found really fascinating, what, what you talk about, what you call grotesque symmetry. there's a, This book is a, just a series of grotesque symmetries. And I'm wondering, do you think that, that observing these and laying them out in beautiful, clear, concise, well-written prose that's understated and not sensational— is that, a,
1: is, does that that have a grotesque symmetry? Yeah. Is your question? Well,
0: well, is it good? Is it a good thing? Is it something? You're
1: making me think that you think that the book is decadent and will be. Um, do you think? Do you think it will in Europe? I mean, again, it's this idea that it.
0: I don't think it's decadent, uh, but I I think that it, it's
1: dangerous.
0: No, uh, I think it's it's fairly over the top. Yes, it's very over-the-top. And, and That was on
1: purpose, of course. Know, right,
0: right, right. Well, I, I'm wondering that I'm a person who's read a lot of horror novels, and that's kind of my background as a reviewer. So I, I'm somewhat used to this kind of thing. But I, I can imagine that you know the, the, the Saturday afternoon ladies' book club picks this up and, and maybe does not have the same feeling.
1: I, I think I know what you're saying. Too, which is that the the way that it's written, the prose,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a way, is. That's why I said decadent. It's not that it's glamorous, but that it in it, that it, in some way, obfuscates or lessens what I'm saying, and yet at the same time, it exaggerates it.
0: It drives it home.
1: Yes, yes. But to have written it, other—I mean, there's no other way to have written it. You, I couldn't have written it in an um, exclamatory, extreme way because it would have made it sentimental and it would have made it bombastic, unreadable. I would, I would think.
0: Right. Well, but I mean, when you choose these subjects, uh, when you choose the, these subjects, when you choose to write about this, I mean, you, you exclude a big part of the reading audience. Do, do, do you? Don't you think? I mean. Yes.
1: I, what, what can I do? I mean, what. I, you know, it's hard to write bad, but it's, um, it's, it's, no, no, I would like very much to have as many people as possible read my books, but I don't know what, I mean, I don't know, I really don't know how to do it.
0: We've been speaking with Susanna Moore. (laughs) Her new book is The Big Do you have any suggestions? (laughs) Well, um, no, I think, well, I think this is a, a, a finely written book. I I I I really enjoyed it. I mean, the the, the craft and the skill that went into this is, is remarkable, and I the subject. I mean, even the way you treat the subject is is remarkable. But as I'm reading, it, I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't even like begin to broach the subjects of this book to my wife.
1: You can't. You don't think?
0: No, no. I mean, she just, she just doesn't want to hear it. I mean, we yeah. have children ourselves, so it, the the whole. You know, I,
1: I I do think that there is something in it that does make you uncomfortable. You makes you, well, rank uncomfortable. Uh, that's unsettled.
0: That's true, but don't. Uh, I'm just wondering. Isn't that not part of your point to make people unsettled with a, this book? I mean,
1: yes, but I want them to be unsettled by the subjects. You know, women in prison, child abuse, um, the anarchy in families, not you're unsettled by something much more subtle which is just the in fact the sort of form of it and the the way you experience it as a book
0: as a reading experience yes well i, I it's an interesting reading experience because um i guess the way you've written it is it forces us to to create the narrative we there's no by yes, telling, I'm not
1: helping you out too much.
0: No, no, no. But but the way the narrative is structured, there's no like a, a simple story that we can follow from beginning to end. A, as a reader, the way by telling it in four different points of view, you force us to put together the story. And that's, I think, what I find very disturbing because you force us to go through all this these horrible details that you pull out of all the four different backgrounds and put them together and put together the narrative ourselves. And I'm... I, I guess that that's just the the style of the the this talent. I guess it's an oral history style.
1: It's also, you know, it's it would be um, typical of the two characters. You know, in other words, a, a psychiatrist. And I was conscious of that when I was writing it. deliberate. I think it's why I picked a psychiatrist. She, by her very profession and training, is not drawing conclusions, and Helen, because of her psychosis, and it, it cannot draw conclusions. And so you, you. The Reader
0: must that's well that's what makes it interesting and and I'm wondering did you look at any other I guess forms of this oral history the the multi threaded narrative I'm thinking when I talk this as this book reminds me quite a bit of the the most recent Chuck Polinick book, which is the story of a serial killer and it's told from all the points of people view of people who knew him before and after he was a serial killer so. Um He based this very deliberately on some oral histories uh there's a, the life of Jarby Crash, one of the the lead singer of the germs and edie um Edie Sedgwick. so I'm wondering, did you look at some of those no I, I
1: didn't look at those, although I like those books very much, and I haven't read this book, although I you know will do so now unless it will make me feel bad, will it make me feel bad.
0: Oh, I don't know. No, I think this book, this book, your book, might make Chuck feel bad. <laughs> it's more likely the case. Uh, well, uh, Susanna, tell me, what is you? What are you working on now?
1: Um, I spent uh, six months last year in Germany because I had a fellowship at the American Academy in Berlin, which is this quite extraordinary place where you are very well taken care of and given a researcher and a translator, if you like, and you are you are fed and you are just there to do research. And I was there to to really to look about, which is something I need to do for a book. But also, I want to write a novel about the last days in Berlin before the Red Army arrives, which were very tumultuous, terrifying days, and the aftermath of that, in 1945, of that, of the conquest of the city, the taking of the city by the Russians. It's very controversial, just the fact that the, you know, many of the things I read were extremely anti-Churchill and anti-Eisenhower, which, of course, as you know, a good American shocked me. How could anyone say anything bad about Eisenhower? But they're, there's a lot of historical opinion that defaults him for the fall of Berlin and there was a deal with Stalin anyway. I'm writing about this and and completely you know fascinated by
0: it well well I guess uh, I- As I understand, you were originally going to write about some English fascists.
1: Yes, I was going to write about Diana Mitford and her husband, Oswald Mosley. And I really, the first two months there, read about them, everything I could find. And I grew so to loathe the main character, Diana Mitford, that I actually had to put it aside. Because I thought, you know, there's even being tough-minded, even being objective, even... Uh, with all of um, this research, I, I, there is no possible way that I can make her, in any way, uh, an acceptable character. I mean, you may not like Helen, but you, you don't loathe her. I don't think, and you, you accept her, don't you? In in the new book, in the yeah, big girls. Yeah,
0: no, it it just. It, I mean,
1: you I, may not love her the way I do, but you don't dislike her.
0: No, no, she's a she's a fascinating character, and you re, you understand her. But given the fact that you managed to make a woman who kills her own children uh, a, a sympathetic character, I find it hard to believe that there's anybody else out there. Well, six you...
1: million Jews is a little, you know, is a little harder. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, Diana Mitford and the Mosleys, uh, I mean, uh, unspeakable. I, I just didn't. And also I was really rather revolted by what I was reading. And I felt I I couldn't, I couldn't write about it. Well
0: And so you have chosen, who are your characters in your new book? Do you know yet?
1: A, a German German couple um, who are in Berlin in those last days. I was very, very influenced, I think, and I have to be careful not to steal too much from it. A, a book called "A Woman in Berlin" by um, anonymous It's nonfiction, and it's a journal written by a woman, a young woman who was there when the Russians arrived. And, you know, millions of women were raped in the first few weeks.
0: This sounds like another uncomfortable and disturbing <laughs> book by you. I hope so. We'll, we'll, we'll look forward to being deeply discomfited, disturbed, and, and having our, our dreams uh, annihilated for several weeks.
1: That's very Freudian of you. <laughs>
0: oh, Good. <laughs> We've been speaking with Susanna Moore. Her new book is The Big Girls. Thank you for joining me, Susanna.
1: Thank you, Rick.
0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.